I think that's what worship and ministry is like, in case you're wondering. <laughs> oh, now i got to talk fast. You guys are looking at your watches, and I wonder if he knows what time it is, you know. Don't worry, my wife has the middle school kids in this session, so, <laughs> baby. Anyway, so one of my roles as pastor here is to ponder the deep mysteries of life. On your behalf, because you don't have time, because you have real jobs. (laughs) I've been pondering a few of the deep mysteries of life lately. I want to share a few with them, share a few of them with you. You know, when you get train wrecked by the Holy Spirit, it's just hard to. Now, the first mystery is why we call it a pair of jeans when it's only one thing. (laughs) Cricket. The second mystery I was pondering this week is why is the W called W and not double V? You know? W? Smarty pants. When we're saying the alphabet, why do we say LMNOP so fast? Why is it that something that comes to you in a car is called a shipment, but if it comes to you in a ship, it's called cargo? You see what I do for you all week long? Why do we say heads up when we really mean duck? Why are they called chicken fingers? Why are the little packs of candy called fun-sized? What's so fun about getting less candy? (laughs) Tough audience. (laughs) I'm waiting for your Rodney Dangerfield impersonation. There you go. Are you kidding? Okay. (laughs) Why does lemonade have imitation flavorings and furniture polish contains real lemon juice? Don't drink it. Why does the dentist dentist ask you questions when there's no good way for you to answer? And finally, the deepest mystery of life that I've been pondering for more than 20 years. Why did Julia Roberts, Mary Lyle, love it? You know, when, when that happened, all of us guys were like, so there was a chance. <laughs> I, have an, I have another question for you, and the question is, why is the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible? It's such a buzzkill. I mean, think about it. Think about it. Have Have you read Ecclesiastes yet? You get about this far in the Bible, and I mean, it starts out meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless, and then it gets worse. And it just talks about how utterly meaningless and futile life really is. It's a real bummer, isn't it? 
Why is it in the Bible? What if I told you that there's a very small section of it, a secret in it, that will tell you not only why it's in the Bible, but that it will, it's, the, it's the key component to answering all of the questions connected to the deep mysteries of life. Would you be interested in seeing it? Do I sound like I'm over-promising? Father, we invite you to come in the power of your word and talk to us. You meant something when you inspired your servant to write this book. And so we want to know what you meant because we want to know what you mean. Lord, uh, nobody came to listen to me. Nobody. They came to connect with you. And so I pray, Father, that you'll come in this time and that the the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, Lord, but that you'll carry them from my lips to the hearts of every person here, no matter where they are. And you'll say something specifically and powerfully to each person in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're at stop number 18 on the Through the Bible series. If you're new here, I started a while back just going through the Bible, and uh, people want to know what the Bible is and what it does, and I get that, and I want to help you discover that. So we've been doing a book at a time, or sometimes a couple of books at a time, and uh, the idea here is that we want to get kind of a high flyover of it so that we can get a sense of the whole Bible, then we can start looking at, you know, substantially more specific parts of it. So each week I've been starting by talking about the context of the book, and the context is the bigger picture around the book. I really like this picture of Central Park. How many of you have been to Central Park in Manhattan? It is so cool to be there, isn't it? Because you're in the city, and then you're in the, in the park. And you can get halfway into the park, and you forget that you're in Manhattan, right? And you can get back into Manhattan and forget that there's a park there. And that's context. So what's going on around it? I want you to think about that. You're in Central Park, and you think you could just go forever. But eventually, you're going to run in to Columbus Circle. Right? That's context. It makes a difference what's going on around it. The context of Ecclesiastes, the name... I think the best way to explain the name, why is it called Ecclesiastes, is it means the teacher of the assembly. Okay, buckle up. It's a, it's a Latin derivation of a Greek word that was translated from Hebrew. I know. So the original Hebrew word is koaleth, which means teacher, and it was translated in the Greek Septuagint to, um, to uh, ekklesia, which is the same Greek word that Jesus used to talk about what the church is. So the church... When he said ecclesia, it's the gathered. It's those who are called out. Not just gathered, but called out. You know you're not here by accident today? You think you made up your mind to come here, didn't you? Surprise! God drew you here. Because he loves you. God drew you into this place. Because he loves you. You're called to be here today. By the will of God. And here you are. And so anyway, when they were translating stuff into Latin from the Greek, from the Hebrew, then it became Ecclesiastes, and the best 
way to really interpret that is we're listening to the teacher of the assembly. And it was written by Solomon. That's who the teacher is in this. Solomon, King Solomon. How do we know that? Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the words of the teacher, the Koaleth, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Who was the son of David who was the king in Jerusalem? Solomon, exactly. So we know that's who it is. It was written during Solomon's older age, during the last season of his life. How many of you know from reading your Bible that Solomon started out really well, but he ended badly? You know that? And so he wrote this during that badly. He, had, he wound up with 700 concubines and 300 wives. Can you imagine his mother's day? <laughs> and so he ended badly. Started well, ended badly. I don't judge him for that. I think it's in the Bible for our benefit, though. And so he wrote this at that time. Wisest man in the world. He had accomplished. He had built a great kingdom. Had all kinds of stuff. And his conclusion of the matter is, it's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. Except for one thing. We'll get there. It was really written for the courts of wisdom that were beginning to emerge. So you need to think about what's going on in this time, about 1000 B.C. And, you know, humans had been on the earth to the point that they were getting beyond just having to figure out how to eat. And they could kind of settle down. Civilization had come to fortified cities and stuff. Well, when you get there, you can start to ponder the bigger things of life. That's when wisdom comes in. Before that, it's how are we going to make it to tomorrow? And so the courts of wisdom of humanity were beginning to emerge. And Solomon was in the middle of it because he was, by God's design, the wisest man in the world. Now, this was pre-Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And so it really set the stage for other wisdom that came. And that's what it was written for. And it was written because the themes of Ecclesiastes are lingering questions that plague mankind. What's the meaning of life? What am I doing here? And so these kind of questions really emerge out of, um, out of uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's part of the big context. And it, they're asked, I think, in the Bible because God cares about those questions that you have. God cares about your questions. And he's big. I don't ever want to be the one of those churches that says, don't ask questions. I want to encourage your questions. And I think God really cares about your questions. So that's the bigger context. The mains, as far as the main kind of points as you move through it, you got to buckle up for this part because they're all bummers, Okay. And one of the main, main parts of Ecclesiastes is that life can seem meaningless. <laughs> wow. Life can seem meaningless. That you can work really, really hard. You can start to make progress. And yet at the end of the day, you can go, for what? Don't raise your hand, but how many of you know what I'm talking about? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> and it can just feel kind of meaningless, right? And I love it that the Bible calls us out on that. It says, Yeah. He says it doesn't matter. He says if you have a lot of money, it's meaningless. If you don't have any money, it's meaningless. It doesn't matter if you accomplish a whole bunch of stuff or if you don't. It ends up meaningless. I know. It's a big buzzkill, but that's what this is about. It raises the question, why is life meaningless? And then the second main point is to tell you that things come and things go. 
in uh, chapter 3, it talks about that there's a season for everything. That sounds a little bit familiar to you, us in baby boomer generation. This was written before the birds actually did turn, turn, turn the song, just so you know. Okay? I know, you guys who are so much younger than us are going, who are the birds then, mother? (laughs) I know, it was bad, it was bad, losing my mind. But, uh, you know, that things come and things go. That you live your life and you go, ah, we've been here before. We've been here before. You know, you just keep running and running. And it says, it says that life is, it seems like sometimes it's kind of, kind of continuous loop behind you. Also to date me, how many of you remember the background in the Fred Flintstone cartoons? You know what I'm talking about? You guys with all this digital stuff. It's amazing what you guys get to watch. We had to watch Fred's feet move, and then the background went. It was the same background. Dino kept coming around, didn't he? <laughs> and doesn't it seem like life is that way sometimes? It's like, man, I'm, are we, I didn't want to come back to this spot. But the truth is, if I keep moving my feet, we'll get past it. That's what it talks about. It says, one of the main themes is that isolation is not good. Isolation is not good. To isolate ourselves, which is our response to pain, because people screw up, and they, they screw up. And so we put up our stuff, yeah? And that's the place the devil wants us. That's what James chapter 1 says, is that each one is tempted when he is dragged away and enticed. And so isolation, Ecclesiastes says, isn't good. In fact, in chapter 4, it says that two are better than one because if one falls down, there'll be somebody there to pick them up. And it says three are even better, that a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So you get this picture of not only two people like Mike and me in brother-to-brother relationship, but the invitation of the Lord to be the definition of our relationship, and that's a cord that can't really be broken. So isolation is not good. Um, And then I think the last big main point is that success is ultimately not satisfying. I told you these were going to be bummers. That success, at the end of the day, doesn't really quench your thirst. It doesn't really feed your soul. It doesn't matter what your level of success is or what you're successful in that there's value in it, of course. I would rather be successful than unsuccessful, wouldn't you? Of course. Anybody wants to be successful, no problem with that. But what this says is that no matter how successful you are, it's not really going to satisfy you. That it doesn't matter how big the pile of stuff is, that actually when the world offers this stuff to to satisfy you, what it does is it doesn't bring you peace. It brings you more anxiety about the stuff. Who knows what I'm talking about? But that there's something better. There's something better. And that's, what, that's the key to Ecclesiastes is the hot spot for today, which is chapter 3, verse 10. It ex- or 11. It exp- explains the whole, the whole reason Ecclesiastes is in the Bible why it says what it says, and it holds for you the key to answering the questions in your life. It's right up there on the right. Let's read it aloud together. 
God has set eternity in the hearts of men. God has set eternity in our hearts. That the thing that separates us from all the rest of the created order is that God has set eternity in us. We're eternal. It's not our intelligence that separates us from the rest of the created order. It turns out Flipper apparently is as smart as we are. It's not that. It's that God has set eternity in our hearts. That there is an eternal person in there. Someone who's going to live forever somewhere. And so the reason that life is meaningless is because you're an eternal creature. And no matter how successful you are, that the things of this earth can't scratch you where you're really itching. It can't really satisfy your thirst. Because what you're thirsty for is God. You're thirsty for God. That's what Ecclesiastes 3.11 says. I mean, it tells us why the, why the book is in the Bible. Otherwise, if you take that out of there, how does it even square with the rest of the Old Testament that God is a revealing God, a rescuing God, and wants to redeem Israel? It doesn't even make sense, except for that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. That inside of you is something that can only be satisfied by eternal things. It answers the question, what am I doing here? Why am I on the planet? It answers the question, why do I have a life? Why? And you have a, here's what you're doing here. You're getting ready for forever. It turns out that this life is a dress rehearsal. It turns out that how we live our lives with the eternal dynamic of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, will make a substantial, dramatic difference in how we spend forever. That it begins by knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life. Because even though the Bible says that God has set eternity in the heart of every person, the difference between a destination of heaven or a destination of hell is not how good you are, but how good Jesus Christ is and whether you've invited him into your life. That's the difference. That's the only difference. And so this says that there's an eternal person living inside of you. And it's not just for later, it's for now. What about how? Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. That there's, there's a way we can live our lives, there are dynamics of our lives, that when we give ourselves to that God yearning that we have, that God thirst that we have, we keep giving ourselves to that, something is happening on the other side. You're going to catch up with it. But what about that for here now? That's the cool part. Is we get to experience God in the here and now. And Ecclesiastes says that is such a compelling dynamic of who you are that the things of this world can't truly satisfy you that's why the stuff doesn't work is because you're hungry for something the world can't offer you which is a relationship with god jesus said this he said what good would it be for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his own soul i mean what guys what if you are what if you do end up as the guy with the most toys 
and you haven't found your way to God through his son Jesus. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. And that's what you're doing here today. You're here because a compelling thirst has drawn you here. You're thirsty for God. You don't come to the religion, you don't come to the vineyard to do religion. You don't come to the vineyard to listen to some stellar preacher. You come to the vineyard to meet with God. Because you're thirsty for God. We don't have those other things to offer you. good news is we don't need them because it's God you're thirsty for In Isaiah chapter 55 the Bible says come all you who are thirsty it says come on come to the waters all you who have no money come buy and eat See, that doesn't even make sense how can you buy stuff without money Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Because Jesus Christ already paid for it for you. He picked up the tab. Verse 2 says, Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? You're working so hard and you go, I'm still hungry. I'm still not satisfied. It's because Jesus Christ is waiting to come and fill that space. Take over. Come satisfy your thirst with living water that only he can bring. So many of you know if you've been here before that we have a trail around our property here that we affectionately refer to as the wall. Because there are many who, like me, who just go out there and walk it and pray. And it's like a wall. God defines this space as his place of meeting with you. So many things are attached to that wall. And I think you know that I like to go out there a number of times during the week and for sure pray, but always on Sunday morning. I mean, I can't imagine anymore a Sunday morning without having been on the wall before we have our first service. Because I always ask God when I'm out there, what's this, what's the, you know, I've prepared, I've studied, I've prayed, I've listened, I've written, I made my goofy slides, I did all this stuff. But what's, what do you want to do with the people that you draw here? And this morning I was out on the bridge over here. On the wall. It's a, it's a bridge over a wet spot. <laughs> it's really, you know, I like it that it's there because you don't get your feet wet anymore. But it's a bridge. And I, whenever I get out there, I, I'm moved to pray for the living water of Jesus to come into this place and to make a pool for people to come, experience his presence. And this morning I was out there, and I was praying for that, and God just came in thundering power, and he showed me something, not like in a thing I saw in the sky, but it was internal. And what I saw was, a, was God using a power washer. A power washer. It's so cool, some of you people know this, that you take an old engine or something that's all gunked up with caked on grease and all this stuff, and you got to work on that engine or whatever's going on, and you take the power washer and you stand there, 
And what looked ugly, what looked terrible a few moments ago, you see the beauty of it underneath. You know what I mean? It's cool, isn't it? And this is, the, this is the living water of God today, is to come in and not only give you a drink, but to power wash you. Man, I got totally power washed at the 9 o'clock service this morning, I'll tell you what. And I want to invite you into that experience of just receiving the power washing of God, just letting the, the river of God flow over you, past you, on you, in you, and see what he wants to do. God has set eternity in your heart. You're thirsty for one thing, and that's the living water of God. If you're a person here today, and you say, I want in on that. You'd like to be a part of a prayer that we just pray for God to come and power wash you. Whatever that means. If you're a person who feels stirred by that, and you'd like to be a part of that prayer, come on up. Just come on up. We're going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and do a power wash. I'm not a priest. I don't have any holy water. I don't have anything to give you except the promise of God's word. But he says if anybody believes in me, that streams of living water will well up from within inside of him. And you're thirsty. You're thirsty. We're going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and do what the Holy Spirit does. I don't have a magic bullet. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Just come for the thirsty. Come. Come, Holy Spirit.